how long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And Father, this evening, we recognize that you are sovereign and that all events are orchestrated from your ordinance. They're all controlled in your hands. So much so, Father, that we can call history his story. It is all about you, and it's all going according to script. So, Father, we want to recognize that and thank you tonight. But that is not to say that sometimes we wonder Lord, some of us tonight may be in that dark season where we ask, how long, O Lord, will you hide your face from us? Open our eyes lest we die in our depression, lest we die in wondering where you are, what you're doing. So, Father, I ask that you would reaffirm in every heart tonight your absolute sovereignty and goodness, that you allow everything for a purpose, and your purposes are good because you are the supreme good of this universe. So, Lord, we cast all of our trust upon you again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Esther, chapter 1. We'll go through the first five chapters tonight. And as we come to Esther, we're actually stepping back in time a little bit. We've been going through Ezra and Nehemiah. Those are one unified work. And when you come to Esther, you're actually going to go back into the middle of Ezra. So Esther takes place between Ezra chapter 6 and 7. So right in between those chapters of Ezra, you can take the book of Esther and plop that right in there. Now the difference, of course, is that Esther takes place in Persia, the capital of the world empire at the time. And Ezra and Nehemiah take place in Palestine, where the Jews have, a, a few of them have returned from Persia back to their homeland. So Ezra and Nehemiah zooms into what's going on in the land and the struggle between building the temple and the city walls. And Esther is taking us back to what's going on with the Jews that did not go back to the promised land. How are they faring? So that's what we see when we get to Esther, back to the Palestinian Jews. Now, not every Jew did return to Jerusalem. Many of them had grown accustomed to the comforts of the Persian life. And some were even born and raised in Persia. So when the decree was made that the Jews can return to their homeland, not every single Jew jumped on the bandwagon and took the the trip that took months to get to Jerusalem. Huge sacrifice to get back. So those that went back were definitely exercising their trust in the covenant and um, believing that they had a place there to be God's light. On the other hand, we have now a scene of Jews who stay in the comforts and pleasures of Persia and 
we see that they go through a little bit of a struggle, yet God has his hand even on them, which must be of comfort to the Jews going back to Jerusalem. As they're facing their difficulties, we don't know why the author of Ezra, Esther, wrote this book, but I can guess that maybe it had something to do with the Jews in Palestine as they're going through hardship and they're the ones following and trying to, to bring back God's kingdom there. Um, the Jews over in Palestine are not necessarily doing that work. They're just in the comforts of Persia. And yet God intervenes on their behalf and saves the people from Haman's Hitler-like plot and they're, they're spared. And so the Jews in Palestine, knowing of what God's doing with the Jews in Persia, would think, if God's doing that with them, surely he can help us. So I think that it's a book of comfort. Um, we don't know who wrote Esther. Whoever it was had full knowledge of the Persian customs and the way the courts ran. He seemed to be intimate with the capital in Susa. So at this point, we'll just call the author of Esther the narrator. Because he is a storyteller. Esther is a fantastic story. And I know most of you um, know the story of Esther. Either you've seen the movie A Night with a King, or you've read this out of sheer pleasure. Um, I know some of you ladies in here had gone through a study through Esther recently. I was talking to one of you who said that. Um, so we familiar with the story. It's a great story, so we'll call him the narrator. The book covers about 10 years, like I said, in the middle of Ezra, and it's from the years 483 to 473 BC. The king of the time is Xerxes. Now, your translations will generally call him a Hauserus, but we'll go with Xerxes because that's his historical name. That's the one that most of us recognize him by. Um, Xerxes had a son named Artaxerxes, and Artaxerxes was the king whom Nehemiah came trembling before and said, will you let me go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? And of course, the king told Nehemiah, go. So this is the father of the king in Nehemiah. So we're, again, we're stepping back in time a little bit. All right. One other interesting point about this book is... Along with the Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, that and Esther are the only two books in the Bible that never mention the name Yahweh. Not a mention. And in fact, you can go as far to say in Esther that there's not even um, an implication of God being in the author's mind at all. There's no mention of prayer there's no mention of the Jewish dietary laws. There's no mention of the Jewish covenant. It's just straight up facts. And wow, coincidence, this happens, and whoop, that happens. Nothing ever attributed to God. You would think that maybe this was a literary ploy, ploy that the narrator decided, let's just make it look like all these coincidences, and at the end I'm going to reveal the great God that came and intervened into the scene. But that didn't happen at the end. At the end, Mordecai is the one glorified the man who's part of saving the Jews, not God. And so, of course, this leaves a plethora of questions as to why would the narrator leave the name of God out of the story? And you have some um, scholars who would be of the opinion that the reason is the narrator wants to point, us, point out to us that these Jews are what they call nominal Jews. 
meaning they practice Judaism in name only, not in heart. So they're just there. They're just God's people. They don't really recognize him. That's why there's no mention of prayer. There's no mention of worship, of the Torah, of the covenant, of any sort of dietary laws. Uh, You contrast Daniel. Daniel was a young man in a foreign court. Esther is a young woman in a foreign court. Similarities. Yet Daniel goes out of his way to explain that he upheld Jewish dietary laws in that situation. And with Esther, there's nothing mentioned about that. So there's an intentional omission here. Now, the question is whether or not these Jews really were 100% secular, and so it's worthy of not mentioning God at all, or the narrator has a purpose in his writing to make it as if God's not in the scene. Why that would be is up to debate and question. I would need a lot more longer to think about before I'm confident giving you guys an answer on that. However, I think the omission of God's name here fits pointedly to many of us tonight. The reason we read Psalm 13 to open up is because there the psalmist is clearly struggling with, where are you, God? He opens the psalm by saying, how long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow all the day? How long shall my enemy insert Haman here, how long shall that enemy have victory over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord. Let up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies prevail against me. There's this desperate cry for God to intervene on the psalmist's behalf just because of what his enemy is doing and coming against him. And the psalmist seems to have no ability to see God's work anywhere. And if any of you guys are like me at all, I I would dare to say that we've been there before. Where we look at the story of life and we don't see God's name mentioned anywhere. And we think, where is God in this? God, help me. Where are you? I I don't see you. I don't hear you. I don't smell you. I've never done that, but I don't recognize you anywhere. Where are you? So... The omission of his name in the story of Esther makes this very practical for us because we go through those times. Where? Where is he? Where is he? I don't see him in the story of my life. Yet God, clearly, if you read Esther, you know God is clearly behind the scenes orchestrating these things. And it's the same thing with your life. When you don't see, when you don't sense, he's there. And when you, like the psalmist, ask, how long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? You need only to look at Esther and realize when I don't see his name or see his face, it's because he is ducked behind the curtain to work behind the scenes. So when the seeing and sensing of God is gone, perhaps we're at the moment of a great intervention where God's going to step in and make your story his story. All right, real quick cap of the story of Esther, because maybe I'm saying all this and there are people saying, what is he talking about? God stepping in the scene, bad things happening. Who's Haman? Who's Mordecai? Well, very, 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 very short synopsis of the book would be that there is a king named Xerxes. He has a right-hand man named hot-headed, Hitler-like, hated Haman. 
And I call him that because he's just like Hitler. He steps up and says, Xerxes, there are Jews in your kingdom who don't want to worship you. They're doing their own little thing. Xerxes thinking, oh my gosh, you're going to start a rebellion. Haman says, I'll stamp them out. And Xerxes says, go ahead. Meanwhile, this Jewish girl marries the king. He has no idea she's Jewish. She dares to ask him, will you please spare the people because they're my people? He says, okay. And um, he allows the people to fight back when the ordinance to kill the Jews is made. They can fight back, and they live happily ever after. Meanwhile, hot-headed Hitler-like-hated Haman is hanging, suspended, and impaled on a pole as the story clothes with his ten sons. So everything works out really well. <laughs> and Mordecai is elevated. So that's the short end of the story. You look at it and say, golly, who, what in the world? What, God doesn't care about his people. They're going to be killed by this nincompoop. And God steps in and he rescues. And so that's why we talk about God's sovereignty. That's why we talk about when you don't see God in the events of your life, he is there because that's what Esther shows. He's there. See him or not, he is there. So now let us go over the five chapters and I will make points and applications where appropriate. And then um, I do want to share a parallel at the end that will show, I think, something really neat that the author put in that shows us the um, it parallels of Christ in our life. So that'll be shown. There's, there's two parallels. Chapters 1 through 5 can be divided into two halves in this sense, not, narr- not, not story halves, but um, you can go chapters 1 and 2 and then 3 through 5. And I will show you guys the parallels between those two sections, 1 and 2 and 3 and 5. And we'll marry those and then apply it to us and pray. But first, chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the days of, and I'll insert, Xerxes, the Xerxes who worshipped from, in, or who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Xerxes sat on his throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. So everybody who's anybody in the kingdom was here. While he showed the riches of his glory, of his royal glory, and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, a mere 180 days. (laughs) And when that long feast was over, these days are completed. The king gave for all the people present in Susa, so his inner circle now, the citadel, both small and great, a feast lasting for seven days. So 180 wasn't enough. They have to have 187 in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Now it goes on to describe all the many cotton curtains and violet hangings, and there were pillars, and there were couches, and there was mother pearl and precious stones, and there was wine. And the king said in verse 8, there is no compulsion in drinking. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Now there's a word that we're going to see Um, It didn't pop out to me the first or second or third reading through, but maybe like the 100th. 
Um, the, the phrase desired and it does it, as it pleases the king, so being pleased and desired seems to run through the first two chapters of this story. And I think that may be intentional. Um, I, I see Xerxes as a buffoon. He, he's a little bit of a clown. He's, he's jostled around by his authorities, by people's opinions. And all he thinks about is, yay, I got to do this. Pleasure. 180-day feast is over. What you, ah, my ring of circle, like inner friends. Let's have seven more days. And he just does thing after thing, whatever pleases him, whatever he desires. Um, a little bit of a sensualist. So a sensual buffoon. Great picture. That's what we have with Xerxes. Now, when it says that there is no compulsion to drink, in the custom, when the king drank, you drank. You had to. It was part of the fellowship. So you can't refuse a drink any time. And so when the king here says uh, no compulsion, he's just letting people drink at will. And so now they don't, they don't have to drink when the king drinks. They get to drink whenever they want. So it's as each man desired. So here is the central buffoon giving a central buffoon party for all the people. And in the middle of it, verse 9, we read that Queen Vashti, so this is Xerxes' wife, one of many, but she's the special one who wears the crown. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the woman in the palace that belonged to King Xerxes. So, meanwhile, the women are having their own party, customary. They didn't, want, they didn't usually intermix, so they're having two parties, two locations. I think this is important for what comes next. So what does come next? Well, we have beautiful Vashti in one banquet, the, sensu- the sensuous buffoon in the other banquet, and everybody doing as they desire. And on the seventh day, final day of the feast, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded seven of his buds who served in the presence of the king to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty. For she was lovely to look at. Now, what exactly is happening here? There are many who propose Xerxes in his drunken state is asking for his queen to come out wearing nothing but the crown. So when it says that he wanted to come out with the crown, the implication is, only the crown and nothing else on to show off that kind of beauty to the people. The fact that he's drunk does give credibility to the thought. However, before we jump into that thought, let us not assume that's the case because nowhere does the text imply that there was immorality in the request. It simply says, let her come out with the crown so that everyone sees her beauty. That's all it says. So we need not assume that there was something immoral in the request here. However, when we do drink to our desire, often these are things that happen, stupid things happen. When Noah got drunk in Genesis 9, he decided his clothes were too much for him. (laughs) They hindered his inner beauty. So the wine told him to take them off. And that often leads, there's something with drunkenness and nakedness. That's often when people end up having a a, a sexual relationship that they don't want to have is because alcohol was in the mix. Drunkenness often brings nakedness. 
And whatever it is about the, about the alcohol influences us to think that we are much prettier than our clothes tell us. And Xerxes maybe thought the same thing. So it is fitting to have that interpretation. However, guys, come on, we've got to take this seriously. <laughs> However, again, it does not say anything about that. Well, nonetheless, verse 12. Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him because he looks like the sensual buffoon he is. She didn't come. She stood up to him. Now, I said that verse 9, that she's having her separate banquet is important, I think, because I think this illuminates maybe what's going on here between the tension of husband and wife. If it's a given fact in custom that the two had separate banquets, the narrator would not feel compelled to say Vashti was having her own banquet. It does not change the story at all to know that she was summoned to the king. It doesn't matter where she's coming from, you would think. She was just summoned and she refused. But the fact that she had her own banquet going on tells me this wasn't necessarily had anything to do with, I want you to parade your nakedness in front of the drunken buffoons with me. I think it was more along the lines of she, he is having his banquet where he's the king. He's got all of these people glorifying what a marvelous palace, sharing his riches and his food. And he can throw a 187-day-long feast and still be having plenty and saying no one's under compulsion to drink. Just keep drinking, drinking, drinking. That's glory for a man. And he's being eyeballed as a glorious figure, the most powerful man in the kingdom. Meanwhile, Vashti is not under his shadow right now, next to him. She's in her own banquet, the highest woman, most powerful, beautiful, glorious woman in the empire is having her own banquet. And maybe the glory got to her head as everyone is goo-gooing over her, obeying her for 187 days, and all of a sudden, my drunken, sensual, buffoon husband wants me to leave this party and obey that slob? I think it's an issue of pride here. She does not want to be whipped in front of all the adoring women that she's going to listen to that drunken, sensual buffoon. I, I think she thinks, no way. I'm staying here. So she refuses to come. Now, this shows us this tension between uh, husband and wife, tiger tension in between them. this, This whole vying for power shows us that even when you're king, even when you have everything you want, and life is... Um, artificially as, as most like paradise as it can be, you still will never have Eden-like paradise without the work of God. Because they too are in subjection to the curse that God gave in Genesis 3 upon fallen sinful man. In Genesis 3.16, it says... This is, this is right after they sinned. They're playing the blame game. She did it. Snake did it. And God is just giving th- his ordinance that, that the world will now be in a fallen state until his return. This is part of the fallenness. We call it the curse, the fall. It says in 3.16, he says, To the woman, God said, 
I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now that may not refer to the actual labor pains because he says he will multiply the pains, implying they were already there. Um, perhaps this is more the pain of bringing children up. I'm sorry, mom and dad. And then part B of verse 16. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That is part of the curse, too. That she will desire her, not, not in a sense like, I, I want to be with him. That's not a curse. That's a good thing. Her desire for her husband is, I want to be the king of my husband. But he will rule over you. And this is part of the marital tension. This is all part of the curse. And here we see king and queen, and they can't, with all their glory, reverse the curse. It's still there. And so she wants, I'm not going to be ruled around by you, insert my authority. Well, now Xerxes has to bring the axe back down on her. And so the curse is very much alive and well. Queen Vashti was insubordinate. She refused to listen to him. So that's what's going on. And this, set, this paves the path for Esther. I'll get there. There's a reason we're spending time on this. So the king is enraged. He calls his wise men over. This is why I call him the buffoon. He's very influenced by everyone else's opinion. He's just mad. Just asks everybody, what else, what do you guys think I should do? And his seven wise men tell him, let's make a law. I mean, this is really important. We make a law that no woman is to stand up against her husband because Vashi's a bad example. Everyone's laughing at you, king. They're all going to do the same thing. So let's make a law that this is not to be in the kingdom ever at all. So they send out the law, and they exile Vashti from her queenly status. She just kind of goes into the reject wife Harlem, and they sit there and have their cups of tea and whatever else they do while they're never again to see the king. They have to be single forever. Um, so she's exiled there, and that's what they decide to do. Well, that ends chapter 1. In chapter 2, it says, After these things... When the anger of King Artaxerxes, excuse me, of King Xerxes had abated, he's now chilling out, he remembered Vashti and what she had done. Notice not how what he had done to her, but what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Well, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And so the king appointed officers in all provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful women, all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And they were given cosmetics, and the most beautiful one was to be picked in place of Vashti. So it's, a, it's an empire-wide um, Miss Persia pageant. And... They're going to go grab the women and pick the winner of the pageant to become the new queen. But Xerxes was heated about Vashti, and all of a sudden he's, okay, I'm over it. I remember what happened. It's too bad. Rather than going back to her, he decides to have a beauty pageant and get a new, rather than going to his harem and getting another girl, one of his many wives, to become the queen, he decides he needs a totally new person. Um, The transition here may be due to the fact that in between chapters 1 and 2, historically, there were, 
a couple of major battles fought between the Persians and the Greeks. And that's just, this is where we would pit it. There was about two years of war between those two. And Xerxes was pretty badly beat by the Greeks. The Battle of Salamis is pretty much the most famous battle in which the Greek navy destroyed the Persian navy. And um, they basically the Greeks gained their independence from the Persians. So Xerxes comes back from being whipped like that, and he comes back to his kingdom, and he thinks, oh, man, I don't even have a pretty woman to comfort me. So he decides to find a new one. So that's what's happening behind the scenes. And so they call for the beauty pageant. Now, notice at the end of verse 4, it said that this pleased the king, and he did so. So now in verse 5, we are introduced to two new characters. Mordecai, he's the good guy. He's the hero of our story. And his cousin, Esther, she's the heroine of the story. They're cousins. She's younger than Mordecai. Esther's an orphan. Her parents had died. Mordecai, being a good cousin, is now the father figure in her life. And they are introduced to the scene. The narrator lets us know Esther's beautiful. And this is a bad thing. You don't want to be beautiful when the drunken, sensuous buffoon who's just been defeated by the Greeks and angry is looking for a beautiful wife. This isn't a beauty pageant where the pretty girls say, oh, mom, can I please go try out for that? And everyone's so proud of their pretty daughter and congratulating her. And this is not the way it, that's America in a free country. This is not the way it works in Persia. The king wants a pretty woman, so he takes you against your will, whether you want to go or not. You're grabbed to be part of his harem. So if you're pretty, you're hunted. And you're going to become the king's possession, one of his many girls. And that was Esther's case. She was taken. And so we often maybe think of the story of, oh, yay, Esther, like something bright's happening, like, oh, like the, the excitement, maybe I'll be the queen. That's about the only good she had for her, is maybe, maybe I'll be the queen. She's, ta- she's ripped out of her family. She's ripped from her freedom. And now all of her dreams of romance and some cute guy and knight in shining armor, shattered. Never going to have that. You're now going to have the sensuous buffoon who gets drunk. And you don't see for half the year because he's having a half year long party. That's what she's got in front of her. So it could look bad bleak. But of course, God is working whether we see him or not. All right. Now, of course, Esther was taken to the harem. They have this whole year-long cosmetic thing. Pedicures, manicures, girls just spend a year in the spa. That's about the only good going for her. And in verse 15, uh, basically, he's narrating what happens. The king will take a girl one night, and um, they consecrate their, quote, marriage. And then in the morning, he's done with her. She goes to the other harem. And if I call you back, I call you back. Otherwise, don't even come to me. So there's, a, there's the waiting girls, there's the one night with the king, and then there's the reject girls. And they just stay there. Married to the king, but never seeing or talking to him. Well, it's Esther's turn. And in verse 15, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of, so the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the woman, advised. 
Now, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. I don't think that's that last line, Esther's winning favor, is a coincidence right there. I think it's intentionally, con- it's, it's intentionally listed right after it says that Esther asked for nothing except what the eunuch advised. The eunuch knows what the king wants. She submitted to someone else's opinion. Here's a girl with every jewelry, treasure, beautiful possession she can ever adorn herself with at her fingertips. The king's just giving them a truckload of stuff. Make yourselves pretty because I want a pretty woman. And Esther doesn't just greedily grab what she wants. She submits herself to the wisdom of the eunuch's advice. A massive contrast to the buffoon, the sensual buffoon, King Xerxes, who wants everything he desires. Everything is whatever pleases the king. So here's a contrast already between Esther and the king. And furthermore, it's a contrast between Esther and Vashti. Vashti was disposed because she was insubordinate. Here's Esther, who is submissive. Verse 10 of chapter 2 highlights this. Esther had not made known her people or kindred. In other words, that she's a Jew. She didn't let anyone know that. For Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. So she didn't let it be known. If you look at 3, um, verse It's, it's actually 2, verse 20. It says, Esther had not made known her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. So throughout the story, it's highlighting Esther as a submissive woman. And it's highlighting as a good thing. It wins her favor amongst the people that are around her. And Vashti was not submissive. She refused in her pride to obey the king. So with this in mind, we dispose of Vashti because she's insubordinate. I want a new queen, beautiful. Is he going to go for another insubordinate one? No. He'll go for a submissive woman. So Esther demonstrates that. And in verse 16, we learn, when Esther was taken to King Xerxes into his royal palace in the ninth month, which is the month of Tebeth, the seventh, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther. Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. There was something attractive to Esther more than physical appearance. It was a submissive spirit, not the slave-like spirit, but the spirit that just said, I respect that you are over me, and I'm going to make that easy for you. And that was attractive to the king. He just got done with Vashti, the stubborn mule. And now Vashti looks all the more attractive. Or uh, Esther looks all the more attractive. So she wins. And I think it would be appropriate at this second to comment 1 Peter 3 that the Bible teaches the submissive spirit of a woman not as some just command. Just just obey the men because they're the kings of the universe and you're their little sandwich makers and channel changers and dog feeders errand shoppers and laundry washers keep going 
No, it's, it's quite different. It's 1 Peter 3, verse 3. Peter says to the women of the church, Do not let your adorning be external, the abrading of the hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. Let not your doing just be outside, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, which is an imperishable beauty. How do you get that inner person out? He says, by that gentle, quiet, submissive spirit. That's how the beauty inside comes out. That's how the girl ought to adorn herself. And he goes on to say in verse 5, For this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, <laughs> as if they're not doing that in the church then or now. It's <laughs> um, how they used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children. It's good to be a son of Abraham. That means salvation. I think Peter maybe has that little, that, that feminine side behind the thought. You are the children of Sarah. If you are of the same spirit, gentle, quiet, submissive spirit. In other words, it's a mark of salvation. Well, okay, so this is Esther, biblical and all. And what happens now, the king sees a submissive spirit and he loves her. He gives her favor and the sensual buffoon turns into a generous Saint Nick in verse 18. Then the king gave a great feast. (laughs) Oh, that's new. For all his officials and servants. But this one was Esther's feast. It wasn't his feast. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Not just generosity, royal generosity. Ah, taxes off for a year. Here's some gifts. I'm going to give you guys tax. Like, you know, tax me. Here's the gifts. And Esther's feast. And what a, what a turnaround. Now, now, granted, he may not have totally changed because he li- later listens to Haman like the buffoon he is. But here, he's, he's once again influenced. He's just swayed back and forth by people. But we see the power of a submissive woman to change the heart of a man who's just all about himself to wanting to love the woman through her attractive, gentle, quiet, submissive spirit. And that's the reason the Bible asks that of women. It's not so that they can be whipped, it's so that they can be loved upon. Because men love that. There is nothing worse than having a queen Vashti refusing everything you do and vying for power and challenging your authority. So while the curse said, Genesis 3.16, that there will be, in a sense, enmity between man and woman, just a, a, a struggle for power, Esther reverses the curse by simply submitting and letting the king be, the man be her king. And there's now peace, it seems. Um, the king is now a generous spirit. And he loves her. And so the way we reverse the curse of our marital problems is by learning our roles through submission and loving so there's Esther and her great, great spirit. Um, that's, that's one aspect to the curse seen here. The second aspect to the curse, back to Genesis 3, is now going to be revealed more fully in chapter 3. 
So in Genesis 3, we already looked at verse 16, that there's going to be that struggle between power for man and woman. Now, 3.15 says this. We, uh, theologians usually call this the protevangelium, which is a fancy phrase for the first gospel. Proto, first, evangelium is gospel. So it's the first mention of the gospel in 3.15, Genesis 3.15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And her offspring, he calls him he, he shall bruise the serpent's head, but the serpent shall bruise the woman's offspring's heel, his heel. So there's going to be this war between the offspring of the woman and of the serpent. There's going to be children of these two Genesis figures. And there's always going to be war between them. And at times, the offspring of the serpent, we'll call them the offspring of the devil, sons of the devil, are going to strike the heel of the sons of the woman. They're going to feel a little bit of pain in this hostility. But ultimately, the seed of the woman is going to squash the head of the serpent, and there is going to be no more hostility. There will be victory. The reason I point this out is because Esther is an emblem of the seed of the woman. And our new character in chapter 3, the hot-headed, Hitler-like, hated Haman, is the seed of the serpent. And through the Old Testament, the struggle just goes back and forth. You see, the minute God says that in Genesis 3, Genesis 4, Esau... Um, no, Cain, seed of serpent, Abel, seed of woman. What happens? Hostility. What happens? Seed of woman's heel is bruised because Abel kills, Cain kills Abel. So you see some of that hostility between seed of woman, which is the righteous, seed of serpent, which is the wicked. And ultimately, what the seed of the woman is, it's the line of the righteous from Eve on down till you get to the very bottom of it, and it's Jesus Christ. Paul says in Galatians 4.4 that Jesus was born of woman. Duh. I was too. Everyone is. But see, that's the the point. He's not saying something obvious. He's saying something theologically meaningful. That Jesus was the seed of the woman promised that will bruise, not bruise, but crush the head of the serpent. And Colossians 2.15 says that when he was on the cross, he disarmed Satan. You you just put this in a different phrase and say he crushed his head. And the rest of him is going to be totally crushed when he returns. So there's, here's Esther holding that seed of the woman. So she's the righteous and Haman is the seed of the serpent, the evil. You see this in the New Testament too. Jesus called the Pharisees what? Brood of vipers. That's the exact same thing as descendants of the serpent. A brood is an offspring of a viper. You, you sons of the devil. In John 4, 8, 44, you are the children of the devil. He's your father. And me, I'm the fulfillment of the seed of the serpent. And was there hostility between them? Yeah. Seed of the serpent crucified Jesus, bruised his heel. But through it, his resurrection, he smashed the skull of the seed of the serpent. Anyways, that, that whole Genesis 3.15 is through the whole Bible. And it's, it's the point of the Bible. And in Esther, we see a small snippet of this war going on. So, seed of the serpent, Haman shows up, and Esther, seed of the woman, stands strong. And so, Haman, in verse, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, After these things, King Xerxes 
promoted Haman, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his throne above all officials who were with him. Now, at the end of chapter 2, what happens, Mordecai, good guy Mordecai, don't get him mixed up with Haman. I used to do that. So let's just call him good guy Mordecai. You always remember. Good guy Mordecai spoils a plot. Uh, um, there was a plot to assassinate the king. He hears about it. He saves the king. And it says it was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. Close the story. Go to chapter 3. You would expect to see, and Mordecai was promoted. No, the seed of the serpent was promoted. So, you know, there are times when you're going to feel that you deserve some recognition or maybe a reward for what you did. And it never comes. It will. Mordecai, we'll see it later at this big twist in the story. I, I, whoever gets to teach that, I'm so envious. Um, Mordecai gets rewarded for this later. That's the patience. And Christian, we live in a time where we see the wicked, the seed of the serpent, always prospering. They're always the ones in control of the world. They're always the ones that are rich. And we question and say, why do they succeed? The Proverbs say, do not envy the wicked. Why? Because they're enviable. Like Haman gets promoted and Mordecai is doing the good stuff and he doesn't. But be patient. There's a time when the kingdom will come and reverse everything that's wrong. As Spurgeon said, the wrongs, eternity will right the wrongs of time. And so Galatians 6, 9 says, Do not grow weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not quit. And so Mordecai, keep on going, buddy, because your reward's coming. So anyways, Haman's um, elevated. He's, he's called the Agagite. I have to make this brief. Um, Agagite, that's short for Agag. Agag was the king of Amalek in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Saul was told to kill Agag and all the Amalekites. Did he? No. He spared them. And the Amalekites are always, always giving Israel trouble. They're a picture of the seed of the serpent. Right when they go out in the Exodus, who attacks them first? They're not even, they don't even have weapons. <laughs> Amalekites are attacking them, Amalek. And throughout the scriptures, they're always at war with one another. So God says, in fact, Deuteronomy, God says, when you get to the promised land, you will stamp them out from under the sun. They will be gone. Did they do it? No, Haman's still alive, so. Yep, the Agag was to be destroyed, but he wasn't. And so here we have neglected sin becoming a monster and wreaking havoc in our lives. Now, good guy Mordecai, if you look at 2, verse 5, it says this. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. Why son of Kish? King Saul was the son of Kish, a Benjamite. So Saul failed to kill Agag. But here's Mordecai and Agag, Haman. And he gets a chance to finish the job that was never finished. So I love how Esther just comes and ties up these loose ends. The head of the serpent will be crushed by the end of the story. All right. So Mordecai, um, he's, he's promoted. I'm sorry, Haman's promoted. Mordecai does not bow down to him. The king commanded, pay homage to him. Whenever you guys see him, bow down to him. He's right, my right-hand man. Mordecai doesn't. 
Haman's furious. Haman goes to the king. He says, I, want, you know, I don't want to just get rid of Mordecai. I want to get rid of his whole people. So he gets a law from the king. The Jews will be slaughtered within a year from now. The, the letters are sent out. It's a day before Passover when the Jews are going to celebrate their deliverance from the previous Hitler in Egypt. They get news of, oh great, a new Hitler is in our life. The day before the celebration of deliverance. Maybe a little trying of their faith there. All right, then in chapter four. So that's the scene. And I love the, ex- the last verse of verse, chapter three, verse 15. The couriers went out hurriedly to give out the new law that the Jews are going to be slaughtered in a year. And decree was um, issued in Susa the Citadel. And I love this. So there's the decree going out. Murder is going to happen in a year. The Jews are going to be slaughtered. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. You have, you have to love the comedy that the narrator throws in there. And there they are, probably on the upper palace of, you know, the castle or something, overlooking the city. It's a starry night. The moon's full, and it's, it's, it's quiet up there. It's nice crisp in the air, and they're kicking back on their, their thrones and just enjoying a, a glass of, um, I don't know, probably port or something together. And they're, um, you know, they're just, ah, that was, a, that was a good lot. You came up with their buddy and, you know, talking about stuff, maybe the last golf game they had against each other. And Meanwhile, while they're having this nice quiet evening down below, there's shrieks and hair is being torn out, sh- clothes are being shred, and people are weeping and wailing of their fate. And the sensual buffoon can just drink it away. That's just kind of ironic. So then in chapter 4, Mordecai learns about this, that his people are doomed. And at, he tells Esther, you've got to do something. So Esther replies, um... I can't. It's not proper procedure around here for me just to walk in on the king. I can only come when summoned. And I haven't been summoned for 30 days. Clamorous romantic relationship they have. Now it's funny. Esther's worried about entering the king and being cast out because she wasn't summoned. Vashti angered the king because she didn't come when she was summoned. <laughs> she refused when she was summoned, and Esther just might in, uh, persistently try to come in without being summoned. So they're total different between Vashti and Esther. And um, Esther's all worried about it. She lets Mordecai know, but Mordecai responds, verse 13, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. You'll be dead too. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. And why the narrator doesn't just say God is a mystery. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows, Esther, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. How, what, Esther? You're an orphan. Esther, your life is ruined a couple years ago when you were drafted for the beauty pageant. And, oh, you're just suddenly the queen of the nation? Everything's just working out good? For no reason? Esther, think. Think about the providence in your life. She muses on it, and she agrees. This can't be coincidence. So, verse 16, go, she says to Mordecai, 
Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young woman will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. That's courage. That's, that's, that's Esther right there. The seed of the woman. Jesus was born of a woman. She, she's a picture of the messianic line coming. Jesus was willing to wait, lay down his life to save a people in danger of death. And he, he went to the cross, and more than if I perish, I perish, it's I'm going to perish, and so be it, to save my people. And so Esther does here. Denial and fear will blind us from God's purposes. We can deny all we want, circumstances in our life. Oh, it's just, I'm just here because, or oh, I'm not pretty enough, or I'm too, in this case, I'm too beautiful. <laughs> um, I just don't, you know, I'm in denial that God gave me this job. How can he? It's, it's too horrible. This situation's too, I don't see God in it. I don't see or sense him. Or fear. Yeah, but maybe God's using this to, to let you do this. Mm, that sounds too scary. I might die. Look, to get over denial and fear, which blinds us from God's purposes, we need two steps of faith. We need to hold on to two truths. And briefly, these are one. I am who I am because God has a plan. I was an orphan, so God has a plan. I was too beautiful. I was drafted for the horrendous pageant, so God has a plan. The king hasn't called me for 30 days. I'm, I'm, I'm one of them. Looking at the reject harem. So God has a plan. I'm not good with my speech. God has a plan. I'm not gifted like Mike is. God has a plan. You are who you are. And it's according to his plan. One of my life verses is 1 Corinthians 15.10. It says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By his goodness, he's made me just as I am because he has a plan. So what we need to do is learn to see every event and every circumstance, whether positive or negative, as evidence of his providence. If we begin to write God's name in the places where his name doesn't seem to be, we can stand and say, I am who I am because God has a plan. And I am in this position for that plan. That's why I'm queen. I am who I am because God has a plan. Now you're being more emboldened. You can see God's purpose. Second step. God's plan is never out of hand. So I am who I am because God has a plan, and that plan is never out of hand. Even, as Esther said, if I perish, I perish. Even if you die doing God's plan, it's not like he lost control. So what if you die Paul said in Philippians 1.21 that for me to die is gain. It's not the worst thing that can happen. We have such a phobia of death in America. Good riddance. Revelation paints the martyrs as the glorious ones in heaven. The way I see it, it would be better to be in heaven as a martyr than as someone who died on the golf green because they were struck by lightning. That would be kind of cool, but... (laughs) 
Not def- definitely not the way to die gloriously. Man, why is it that, that we have to like look at all the threat? It can't be God's plan. God is a safe God. It's a positive. Um, my sister, most of you know that she caught malaria on her mission trip in Uganda. And, you know, I, I guess I'm told that malaria isn't as bad these days as it used to be. But, um, of course, the family, I'm talking extended families, freaking out. Oh, my gosh, she got malaria. How dare they send her out there? And, like, you know, they're getting angry about it. And my mom just, like, was calming them down, saying, hey, how do you not know that God's using this to, to like, make her more um, approachable with the people, to just reveal God's grace in her life? And the comment of one family member was, God doesn't work that way. He's too concerned with our health. (laughs) However, I think we often subconsciously think that way. God's not leading me there. It's dangerous. If I die, I die. His plan is never out of hand. So that's Esther's conclusion, and she goes. So in chapter 5, she goes in. What's going to happen? You know, the movies make it all dramatic for you, so you can go there for your drama. She goes in, and the king's just sitting there, and you can just feel her heart, and you can feel it beating out of her chest. And it's like she hasn't talked. Like, maybe she saw him last night. She knows everything's in good standing, um, but I haven't seen him for 30 days. He hates me, and I'm going to walk in on him. What if, who knows what he's doing in there? He might be drunk again. But she goes in, and it says in verse 2, When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Esther approached and touched the tip. And the king asked, what do you want, Esther? (laughs) Total grace and favor. She's wise. She doesn't just say, um, kill Haman. He's a bad guy. I'm a Jew. This isn't going good for me. She knows that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. So she invites him to a banquet. And that's how chapter 5 closes. And chapter 6 through 10, we'll pick that up next week. However, I did promise that we'll finish with two parallels here. So um, I, I love literature. Sometimes I, look, I, I just look at it and I see these things that pop out. And this is what happens. There, there's a pattern of four steps in this narrative. And that those four steps happen twice in our five chapters. The first set is in chapters 1 and 2. The second set is in chapters 3 through 5. This is what the pattern is. It's 1, rebellion. 2, exile. 3, a gathering of people. And 4, favor and grace. So there you have it. Rebellion, exile, gathering, favor, and grace. So in chapters 1 and 2, this is what we see. In 1 verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command. There you have the rebellion on Queen Vashti's part. Look at 3 verse 2. This is the second set of rebellion. And the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. The king commanded. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. So there's a rebellion. So number one, squared away. Number two, the next step is exile. Look at 1 verse 19. So Vashti rebels. In one nineteen, we see, If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him 
and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before the king. She's exiled. Well, look at 3 verse 9. So Haman, um, Mordecai is rebelling against Haman, not bowing. And Haman says in 3.9, If it please the king, let it be decreed that they, the Jews, be destroyed. So he wants to exile the Jews now. That's step two. Step three in our pattern. The gathering of people. 2 verse 3. So Vashti rebels, Vashti's exiled, and now in 2-3 we see the gathering. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital. Gather all the beautiful young virgins. And ultimately, Esther's in this mix, who is a picture of the seed of the woman, soon to be Jesus Christ in the story. Soon to be Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ now, of course. Soon to be Jesus Christ, that's gathered in. Um, now on the other side of the gathering, 4 verse 16. So Mordecai rebels against Haman. Haman seeks to exile the Jews. And now Esther says to gather in 4.16, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink. And then at the end she says, if I perish, I perish. And then finally, favor and grace at 2.17. So see Vashti's rebellion, her exile, and the gathering of beautiful women. Now in 2.17 we see the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight. And then in 5.2 we just read that Esther won favor in his sight. So in many ways, her entering into the king's throne was foreshadowed in the first and second chapter. We had seen rebellion, exile, a gathering, and we should expect favor and grace to come next. And it did. She comes in the throne room and there's favor and grace. Now, this is the cycle of life. This is the cycle of the Bible. It started in Genesis with a beautiful garden and a king who had his servants, man. And what did man do? Rebelled against the king. What happened after his rebellion against the king? He was exiled from paradise. What happened after he's exiled from paradise? There was a great, there is still a great gathering of people through Jesus, bringing some back out of exile and into the new paradise in him. And then the last favor and grace, that is all we experience in Christ, is being gathered back into him, favor and grace, favor and grace, favor and grace so that we can come to his throne room any time and receive favor and grace we don't have to worry that he's a judge to smite us over the head or a creditor to ask us why we haven't paid him a certain time limit of prayer he's the king and father who gives favor and grace and you know you may be tonight like that person like esther but he hasn't, I haven't seen his name. I haven't seen or sensed God for 30 days. I don't think the situation's of him. I can't do it. But in the gathering, Esther, the seed of the woman, was gathered. In the other side of the gathering, in chapter 4, 16, she gathered all the Jews to do what? Fast on behalf of her. She said, if I die, I die. What happened? The seed of the woman, Jesus came he died. He gave his life like Heather was willing to do. 
uh, Esther was willing to do. He gave his life, and he thus gathered us back out of exile that we could receive favor and grace. And that's what Esther does. Just the picture of the Messiah here. And so you might be the person, well, I, I just don't know. It's been 30 days. I don't know. My situation is too tough. I don't know. Listen, Jesus said, I'm going to perish, so I'm going to perish for you, to gather you into my favor and grace. Go forward. You have my favor and grace. And if you die, it's only to give you more favor and grace because you are out of the curse. You are in paradise at that point. So I, I thought that pattern was neat. Um, and to see that this is exactly what has happened to us. And you know what? We could see in the story that it was predictable Esther would gain favor and grace. And Christian, if you've been gathered, it's predictable. <laughs> you are appointed to favor and grace. The king loves you. You need not worry about your situation. He has it in his sovereignty. You need not worry about, whoa, whoa, I can't, God's calling me to this, but oh, I might die, it's too dangerous. He has it in his sovereignty and he loves you. He will never bring upon you what is not good for you. So worry not, fret not. Even if you don't sense or see him anywhere, he's behind the scenes maybe, just because he loves you and he's bringing out a huge surprise. So Father, I pray that you restore to us the confidence of your sovereignty and your love, grace, and favor for us. And Lord, maybe it's been a dark 30 days. We have not seen the king. His name is hidden from our story. But Lord, we want to trust that you're behind the scenes doing something wonderful, working special favor and grace. So we trust you, Jesus. We give ourselves to you where we have doubted. And please forgive our unbelief, Father. We're weak. We want to believe. And we know we've hindered so much through our unbelief. But give us faith tonight. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we will now sing one song, and you guys may have a blessed evening. Didn't he do great? Let's all stand. Let the glory of the Lord rise among us. Let the glory of the Lord rise among us. Let the praises of the King rise among us. Let it rise. Let the songs, let the songs of the Lord rise among us. Let the songs of the Lord rise among us. Let the joy of the King rise among us. Let it rise. Oh, let it rise. Oh, let it rise. Let it rise. Glory, 
Let the glory of the Lord rise among us. Let the glory of the Lord rise among us. Let the praises of the King rise among us. Let it rise. Let the songs of the Lord, let the songs of the Lord rise among us. Let the songs of the Lord rise among us. Let the joy of the King rise among us. Let it rise. Oh, let it rise. Oh, let it rise. Let your glory rise. Oh. Ha, 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 ha.